Welcome to Navarra Live. I am very excited about tonight's show because we have so many stories to cover, really important ones, but also because for the first time I am joined by author Emma Dabbery. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Emma is author of books such as Don't Touch My Hair, What White People Should Do Next. And I need to say congratulations because I saw you in The Guardian yesterday because you have just been announced as a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. I think it might be the first time we've had such a fellow on. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was very honoured to be included in such esteemed company. <laughs> there, was, there was a moment there where I thought maybe you hadn't read the Guardian article. That was me announcing to you that you had joined. But no, you, you, it seems like you, you had been uh, told that you are a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Um, coming up on tonight's show, junior doctors have been on strike today, beginning the longest strike in NHS history. And Nadine Doris is releasing her vengeance in the form of a new book. First story. Rishi Sunak has announced that public sector workers can expect a pay rise. That's after the government accepted the recommendations of all public sector review bodies. This is how the Prime Minister presented the news. When making decisions on pay as your Prime Minister, I have a responsibility to be fair. Fair to public sector workers who do so much in the service of our country. But also fair to taxpayers who ultimately fund our public services. And the best way we found of making fair decisions about public sector pay are the independent pay review bodies. They were called for by the unions themselves. And for over four decades, they have been the independent arbiters of what is fair and responsible. Those bodies have considered a range of evidence about where to set this year's pay. And their recommendations to government are for public sector pay rises to go up by a significant amount. Now, clearly, this will cost all of you as taxpayers more than we had budgeted for. That's why the decision has been difficult and why it has taken time to decide the right course of action. I can confirm today that we are accepting the headline recommendations of the pay review bodies in full. So let's look at those headline recommendations offered for different groups of workers. So you can see here, police, 7%, NHS consultants, specialist doctors, GPs and dentists, 6%, junior doctors will get 6% plus £1,250 as a one-off payment, prison officers, 7%, armed forces, 5% plus a £1,000 one-off payment, and teachers are being offered 6.5%. Those are higher figures than what the government has been offering up to now. But when it comes to how these increases will be paid for, there was also some bad news for public services. We will not fund them by borrowing more or increasing your taxes. It would not be right to increase taxes on everyone to pay some people more, particularly when household budgets are so tight. Neither would it be right to pay for them by higher borrowing because higher borrowing simply makes inflation worse. Instead, because we only have a fixed pot of money to spend from, that means government departments have had to find savings and efficiencies elsewhere in order to prioritise paying public sector workers more. That dreaded phrase, efficiency savings, I hate it. I hate it. It's just a euphemistic way of saying that, in this case, to pay staff properly, services will have to be cut elsewhere. If it was that easy to make public services more efficient, they would have done it already, right? They are just cutting public services. Um, What that means is that we are robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, As for the specifics, the pay increases will cost around £3 billion. I've heard up to £4 billion, but in that ballpark, um, around £2 billion of that will come from within departments. So 
That looks a bit like Austerity Mark II. Um, and in response to a question from the BBC, Sunak revealed another revenue stream, one, in this case, likely to please Tory voters. What we have done are two things to find this money. The first is we're going to increase the charges that we have for migrants who are coming to this country when they apply for visas, and indeed something called the Immigration Health Surcharge, which is the levy that they pay to access the NHS. So all of those fees are going to go up and that will raise over a billion pounds. So across the board, visa application fees are going to go up significantly. And similarly, for the immigration health surcharge, for migrants who are coming to this country legally, they have to pay a fee to access the NHS, to contribute to NHS care. I think that's entirely right. Neither of these fees have been increased recently, and we think it's appropriate, given the costs for everything have gone up, that those fees, both for applying for visas and for accessing the NHS, go up too. That will raise over a billion pounds, as I said, so it's a significant contribution to helping us pay for these pay, uh, pay awards. Now, I'm pretty confident that that is smart politics from Rishi Sunak, putting this cost onto migrants. Whether it's fair is a different question. Now, in response to the move, migrant rights campaigner Zoe Gardner posted this on social media. Extortion. Families living and working in our communities will now be charged thousands of pounds more than they budgeted just to stay in the homes and carry on their lives. This disgusting government has nothing to offer us but bullying migrants in a cost of living crisis. So that's the government offer, the government plan. But will it end the strikes? Sunak had this message for the unions. Today's offer is final. There will be no more talks on pay. We will not negotiate again on this year's settlements and no amount of strikes will change our decision. Instead, the settlement we've reached today gives us a fair way to end the strikes, a fair deal for workers and a fair deal for the British taxpayer. Some unions have already responded to the offer. The teaching unions who were looking for an above inflation pay rise have called off upcoming strikes to allow their members to consider the offer. The general secretaries of all four of them issued this joint statement with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. This is a joint statement. This is the largest ever recommendation from the School Teachers Review Body. A 6.5% increase for teachers and school leaders recognises the vital role that teachers play in our country and ensures that teaching will continue to be an attractive profession. The government has accepted the pay review's recommendation and has agreed to bring forward wider reforms to reduce teacher and leader workload in partnership with all four unions. Importantly, the government's offer is properly funded for schools. The government has committed that all schools will receive additional funding above what was proposed in March, building on the additional £2 billion given to schools in the autumn statement. The government will also provide a hardship fund of up to £40 million to support those schools facing the greatest financial challenges. Now, it's unclear how the government have managed to protect the school's budget without increasing overall spending um, or increasing taxes or borrowing. So potentially it's partly from those charges on migrants. It's also possible that it could be cuts elsewhere in the education department that are paying for this increase in pay for teachers. And what are the junior doctors? Well, Arhan Singh is co-chair of the BMA's junior doctor committee. He told the Mirror, this, this offer equates to an extra 84 pence an hour for a year one junior doctor. It is derisory and inadequate. My WhatsApp is flooded with messages saying this pay offer is insulting. We're not accepting this offer and we'll be out on picket lines as planned. We will find a way, but this is going to be a long dispute. The sentiment is exceptionally strong. We will reballot and reballot and reballot as many times as it takes. 
The police who aren't allowed to strike are also not very happy with the offer on their 7% pay rise. Steve Hartshorn, National Chair of the Police Federation of England and Wales, said this... This is a step in the right direction, but we must not lose sight of the fact that this uplift still fails to take account of the real-term cut of 17% officers have suffered since 2000. It is important that government also provides new money for the pay awards so that chief officers do not have to cut essential services to the public to fund it. Hearing today's news, I have no doubt that police officers will have mixed feelings. On the one hand, they will be pleased that the pay award was not as bad as some media outlets had speculated, but also disappointed that it doesn't fully take account of inflation as they and their families struggle with increased utility, mortgage and food costs. Emma, what's your take on this news? I know I feel like in a way the Tories were trying to lower expectations. They were saying, oh, we're not going to follow the advice of the, the, the pay review bodies, which really is the bare minimum. And now they've said, great, we're following their advice um, we're giving you the minimum we, proper, we possibly could have done and you should be really, really surprised and, and pleased with it all. What's your take? Listening to Sunak is just so dispiriting and, and, and boring, actually, because like actually something that I agree with him very strongly on, that is it, it is not right to increase taxes for everybody. So I think I just feel like so frustrated by the reality that there is actually you know, a very obvious and easy and straightforward solution to all of this that wouldn't require cuts from other um, public services, wouldn't require this preposterous tax that he is um, suggesting migrants have to uh, pay, basically. Um, honestly, just like a, a modest tax on billionaires could generate surplus um, amounts to fund the NHS and social services for over a year. Um, I think it's like a one, what was it, a 1% wealth tax on households uh, who earn over 1 million could fund 200, uh, could create 260 billion a year, which would fund which would fund the NHS and social services. So there is like a really straightforward way of solving this seemingly in, 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 irresolvable issue. But of course, uh, Sunak is fundamentally committed to um, kind of a ver ver very different policy responses. But yeah, just deeply frustrating. It's always the third option that's not given, isn't it? Well, it will either have to tax you all a lot more or we'll have to borrow loads more what about the option three, which is we'll tax, but just tax the rich a bit more? He doesn't say that for some reason. Not one he's keen on, billionaire Rishi Sunak. I wonder why. Um, still on public sector workers, there's a good news story that doesn't seem to be hitting the news much today. Last year, Kwasi Kwarteng forced through anti-strike legislation while he was business secretary. It would have allowed bosses to bring in temporary staff to replace striking workers, so essentially to break strikes. But a High Court judge has today ruled that the legislation is unlawful. That's after more than 10 unions took the government to court and won. In his ruling, Mr Justice Linden said Kwarteng's move was, quote, so unfair as to be unlawful and indeed irrational. Unison General Secretary Christine McEnay had this to say about the ruling. Not only did Kwasi Kwarteng help trash the economy as Chancellor, now his bulldozer attitude when business secretary has made the government look extremely foolish. With his fingers stuck firmly in his ears, Kwasi Kwarteng ignored the advice of almost everyone around him. He showed a total disregard for working people and their historic rights. 
Really interesting comment here from Loark HD with a tenor. I'm voting no for 6.5% teacher pay rise. It's not fully funded, below inflation, and won't solve retention crisis. People will continue to leave teaching and my workload will increase for derisory pay. Super interesting. Obviously, these pay offers will have to go to members of the public sector union. So you've seen there the teachers or the, the leaders of the teaching unions are suggesting members accept it. But as we saw with the nursing unions, or especially the Royal College of Nurses, that doesn't necessarily mean um, that members will vote for it. So we saw earlier this year, um, the Royal College of Nursing came to, or uh, the leadership of the Royal College of Nurses came to a, an agreement with Steve Barkley. They recommended their members voted for it and their members rejected it. So there's every, you know, it's very possible that that happens again. So that'll be a very big story in the coming weeks and months. Let's go to our next story. Also, on pay. Junior doctors in England have walked out today. The strike will go on for five days, making it the longest in NHS history. It's the fourth walkout by the doctors since their pay dispute began last year. Here's what some striking doctors had to say from the picket lines this morning. Why should we need to continue to strike just to bring the government to the table? The government haven't met with us in months, yet we've been going on with monthly strike action. And it seems that the government are just trying to wait us out, to try and see if we you know, give up striking, but we're not. We're determined as a profession to stand up for ourselves, stand up for the NHS and the country as well. Do you feel respected by the government? Do you feel like the government values uh, the no. work that you and your colleagues do? No, no <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It's all lip, lip service and it really doesn't matter uh, which Conservative MP comes in as the new health minister or whatever, it's all lip service. They can promise whatever they want, but we don't see it. I think the goal is to privatise it, you know, and that's what they do. And they're stripping the NHS of everything. Um, and yeah, they're going to sell it off. Lots of concerns there expressed. But what specifically is the strike about? Well, the junior doctors are demanding pay restoration from the government, having suffered a 25% real terms pay cut since 2008. To get back to that 2008 level, junior doctors would need a 35% uplift. Now that, of course, sounds like a lot. But on the picket line, one junior doctor contextualised that sum for BBC Breakfast. What are you saying to patients who are going to be affected by this? You know, it's, it's sad that it's come to this. As uh, doctors, we are patients as well. My family members are patients. They've had pat uh, operations and appointments cancelled during all the sets of strikes now. All we need to call off these strikes is a credible offer from Steve Barclay. If Steve Barclay can right now, or throughout the course of the day, say that a junior doctor is worth £20 an hour, we will call off the strikes. But the government position is that asking for a 35% pay increase in the current climate just isn't realistic and isn't going to happen. So what we're asking for is a junior doctor that's on £14 an hour, there's a first port of call for 100 patients overnight, that's got £100,000 of student debt, that's starting life-saving treatment for our loved ones, is worth £20 an hour. And I would encourage any government minister uh, who has the courage of their convictions to come on TV and say that £20 an hour is unreasonable without flapping their gums. It's very reasonable. £20 an hour. Today, the government offered the doctors just 6%. So that junior doctor on £14 per hour, well, they'd get just an extra 84 pence. In Scotland, junior doctors have called off a planned three-day strike there this week. That's after the Scottish government agreed to a 17.5% pay rise over two years. Now, that seems like a much more serious approach to negotiations. Junior doctor Rob Lawrenson described the Westminster government's approach on Radio 4's Today programme. One of the preconditions that the government has 
asked for, for talks to take place, is that there are no strikes. So I can't understand why at the end of our last strike, we weren't sitting down straight away. We've talked to them time and time again. We've sent them letters time and time again saying we're happy to negotiate anytime, anywhere. And our colleagues, our, our doctor colleagues in Scotland, were able to negotiate with the Scottish government, even though they had organised a strike date. And the Scottish government, because of their competence, were able to reach what our Scottish colleagues felt was a credible deal and are now putting to members and have averted any strikes in Scotland. So why, so, don't, why don't you just drop the why don't you drop the, the commitment to strike and why don't you go in and see them now today? Over the last decade or so, we've had a government who has absolutely obliterated any relationship with doctors they could have ever had. They've imposed a public sector wage freeze on us. They imposed our last contract on us. And we had an agreement a multi-year pay deal agreement, which specifically had a clause in that allowed our supposedly independent pay review body to make a recommendation on the unilateral request of any of the involved parties should the economic circumstances change. But the government blocked that, having committed to that in this clause, in this contract and agreement. So they imposed a previous contract on us and on this new multi-year pay deal contract that we had with them, they blocked an agreed clause that we had with them then. So who imposed that pay freeze and that contract? Well, it was none other than Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, when, of course, he was health secretary under the Cameron and May governments. In response to the latest walkout, the current health secretary, Steve Barclay, said this. It is disappointing that the BMA is going ahead with further strike action. This five-day walkout by junior doctors will have an impact on thousands of patients, but patient safety put patient safety at risk and hamper efforts to cut NHS waiting lists. We were in discussions about pay and a range of other measures to improve the working lives of junior doctors until their representatives collapse the negotiations by announcing further strikes. A pay demand of 35% or more is unreasonable and risks fueling inflation, which makes everyone poorer. There's no doubt, of course, the strike is going to be disruptive. After all, junior doctors make up around half of all doctors working in England. And last month's three-day walkout led to more than 100,000 appointments being rescheduled. Yet these disruptions are only a drop in the ocean compared to the carnage the government has inflicted on the NHS. This Sky News graph uses NHS England data and shows just how bad things are. In 2010, when the Tories took power, there were just over 2 million people waiting for treatment. By the end of 2022, it stood at over 7 million. And you can see the pandemic has had an effect, but it's been going up ever since the Tories entered government. I'm joined now by Andrew Myerson, a junior doctor who works in A&E and is striking today. And um, thank you so much for joining us on your strike day. Um, can I get you to respond to the 6% pay offer from, from the government? It's just grossly inadequate. Um, we have lost nearly 32% of our pay in the last 15 years. And uh, we are amenable to a long-term uh, uh, pay deal. As my colleagues uh, uh, as, as noted um, in the clips that you played earlier, um, the Scottish government recognizes that doctors are an important part of the workforce. That uh, that we need to make sure that we have that they have uh, uh, adequate health num numbers of health uh, healthcare staff in Scotland. And they offered a, a reasonable deal uh, that uh, to to the uh, to the to the BMA in Scotland that will be put to to members. Um, that is a government that values the health of the population. And that's not something that we have here. 
um, this 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 uh, this paid offer of six percent is going to do nothing to stop the massive staff hemorrhage that we have. You know, just this morning on the picket line, I spoke to another another two doctors. Uh, one junior fresh out of medical school, uh, and then another quite senior doctor, um, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years short of becoming a consultant. And both of them just had enough. And both of them, you know, asking what they're going to be doing from August. And both of them said that they're moving to Australia. And uh, Rishi Sunak is doing a fantastic job of recruiting uh, doctors uh, into the Australian Health Service, but he's doing a terrible job of, uh, of, of retaining us here. Um, we do a, a very difficult job. And for 14 pounds an hour, starting life-saving treatment, um, uh, you know, doing night shifts, day shifts, uh, not being able to see family and friends because our, our schedules are just so, so terrible. Um, and, you know, and just yesterday I went to, uh, I went to a memorial service for, uh, for a doctor that we work with who um, took his own life. Um, we are seeing uh, really worrying levels of, uh, of staff suicide, of staff sickness, staff mental illness. And it is, it's, it's unbearable. Um, and it is, the NHS has become a very, very difficult place to, to work right now. And we have a government that does not care about patients and does not care about staff. And this 6% uh, 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 offer, which comes out of existing budgets. And that's the other thing that just really pains me is that, you know, this is, this is not, this is, this is, this is going to continue to hurt patients um, and hurt staff. We cannot afford after 40 billion pounds a year in cuts, that's 400 billion over the last decade uh, that the NHS has sustained. Um, we can't afford any more cuts. That is only going to hurt patients and hurt staff. I'm so sorry to hear about your your colleague. That's incredibly tragic, and I'm sure all of our audience really understands, you know, the, the extent of the stress that NHS workers are under at the moment. Um, I, I want to talk about this six percent pay rise, and I suppose the comparisons that are going to be made. So, I think you very reasonably make this comparison to doctors in Scotland. They've been offered a seventeen point five percent pay rise, and you want something similar. I think what the government are going to keep saying—they've said it already, uh, listening to the radio today. This is what they were banging on and on and on, on about. Is they're saying, look, the the teachers look like they're going to accept this pay rise. The nurses have already accepted a pay rise. What they're trying to make out is that this 6% is good enough for everyone else. Why do the doctors think that they are special? Why do the doctors think that they deserve a bigger pay rise than the rest of the public sector? I mean, if that's what's thrown at you, how are you guys going to respond? I don't think that 6%, and you, you saw from the nurses, from the teachers, from the from the, the, the um, uh, folks working in police, um, nobody's happy with this because it still very much represents a, a massive pay cut to what we were making back in 2008, to what people were making back in 2005, 2000, and, and, and 2000. Um, it is not going to do anything to um, improve the, the, you know, the, the, the massive staff hemorrhage that we have right now. And that's what this is about. We need to make sure that we have enough healthcare staff working in the NHS. And if patients, you know, and patients are seeing this right now, if there's no NHS staff, you know, they're going to have, continue to have the longest waits that they've ever experienced at the GP. It's talking about two weeks to see a GP, 15 hours to be seen in A&E, months to, 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 to get cancer treatment. And now just today, uh, we found out that, uh, that the waiting lists have now uh, ballooned to 7.5 million people suffering on these, these, these longest waiting lists in NHS history. What we want to do is we want to make sure that we can change this dynamic uh, with the government uh, to, to make sure that we have enough staff you know, to, to, to move forward uh, and properly care for patients in the way that we are trained to do that. And if you look at, you know, a junior doctor making, you know, 14 pounds an hour, they make double that in Australia. 
they, um, uh, you know, where there are pain conditions that are much better, that are much easier, that uh, ensures that you can have a reasonable quality of life without burning out. Um, you know, the, this this six percent pay rise for all public sector workers is just deeply inadequate. And as as uh, as your colleague mentioned earlier, a brilliant idea. Um, uh, uh, you know, we need a one to two percent wealth tax uh, on people with income. That you know that 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 you know Rishi Sunak can certainly afford. Other wealthy people can certainly afford it. It's not going to bankrupt them. It's just going to create a much fairer society. So that when a wealthy person, when a billionaire, you know, has a heart attack and they ha they have absolutely every right to have an ambulance show up um, uh, within minutes, they deserve that too. Everybody deserves that level of care. But unless we have the funding necessary within the NHS, then you know. A five to six percent pay increase is going to do nothing to 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 to, to stop this massive staff hemorrhage. We want to actually solve the problem instead of kicking it down the road. We've said this is potentially the longest strike in NHS history. I understand for routine operations they get cancelled and, and, and moved. I can see you're an A and E doctor, so I presume it's somewhat different from you. I mean, do you go in if there's an emergency, or is basically you're just confident there's other types of doctors covering for you in A and E? How does this how does this work? How should we understand this? Oh, this is incredibly well planned, well in advance. Um, our senior consult, uh, our consultants are covering for us um, and to make sure that this is done as safely as, as, as possible. So I, I don't have any questions about, you know, the, the, the safety levels right now. But if you just look on a regular day in the NHS, you know, nobody is, nobody is working on a ward that has safe staffing. Um, this is on a regular day when there's no strike action. You know, 500 people are dying every single week because of these terrible delays accessing NHS emergency care. And all of this is related to staff, level, staff levels. If we don't have enough staff in every aspect of, of, of patient care, then patients are going to continue to suffer on these, these, these longest waiting lists in NHS history, 7.5 million today. It's going to be 8 million uh, it, it next month and, and, and grow dramatically from there. Um, we need a government that actually cares about the health and well-being of the population. And right now, we absolutely do not have that. Andrew Myerson, thank you so much for joining us this evening and all of our solidarity to you and your colleagues across the NHS. The junior doctors strike isn't the last NHS strike in the coming days. Next week, senior doctors and consultants will be walking out too. And that strike is for two days, the 21st and 22nd of July. And they've said they'll call it off if the government matches the 12.4% offered to their Scottish counterparts. So as I say, we're going to see these comparisons made a lot. The doctors will be making these comparisons to the pay offer in Scotland. What the government are going to be saying is, but the teachers and the nurses accepted this, right? Or, well, they haven't yet accepted it, but that's what they're, they're hoping. Let's go to our next story. The Sun's incredibly high-profile reporting about Hugh Edwards was undermined by two distinct events. The first, on Monday, was a statement via the lawyer of the 20-year-old at the centre of the story. They said that nothing inappropriate had happened between themselves and the BBC host, and that the Sun story was rubbish. They also said they told the Sun this view, but the paper ignored it. The second fatal blow was the news on Wednesday that the police judged there was no evidence of criminal behaviour on Hugh Edwards' part. Now, the combination of those two statements meant that whoever Hugh Edwards had bought photos from didn't feel they had been exploited. And we can also conclude, or at least it's implied, the relationship between the two people had not broken the law because the police have said they have no reason um, to investigate Edwards. In response, The Sun gave this statement. We must re-emphasize that The Sun at no point in our original story alleged criminality and also took the decision neither to name Mr. Edwards nor the young person involved in the allegations. 
Suggestions about possible criminality were first made at a later date by other media outlets, including the BBC. From the outset, we have reported a story about two very concerned and frustrated parents who made a complaint to the BBC about the behaviour of a presenter and payments from him that fueled the drug habit of a young person. Now, this backtracking from The Sun is, of course, phenomenally disingenuous. First, this was never just a story about concerned parents. If it were, surely the conflicting opinion of the young person involved would have been relevant to the reporting. Why wouldn't we want to have heard both sides? And we know the, uh, the young person, via their lawyer, told The Sun that they had a very, very different account from their parents. Second, why is this disingenuous? Well, the claim The Sun never implied criminal behaviour is just absolute nonsense. Now, this is the first story The Sun published about Hugh Edwards, then, of course, unnamed. Now, I've highlighted the second sentence here, which says, quote, The well-known presenter is accused of giving the teen more than £35,000 since they were 17 in return for sordid images. It is illegal to hold explicit photos of someone under 18, so this sentence does imply criminal behaviour. The fact the police think Edwards has no case to answer suggests that, in fact, there were no photos sent from him, or from them, sorry, when the person was 17. And The Sun were even more explicit. This was a headline on Sunday. Top BBC star who paid child for sex pictures could be charged by cops and face years in prison, experts say. This is a paper that said they never implied criminality. And what I think is even more misleading here is referring to the person in question as a child, right? The person is now 20. We have no evidence Hugh Edwards was ever sent explicit photos of them when they were under 18. So the son's new claims don't stack up. Yet, Rod Little on Newsnight still claimed they had done a tip-top job of their journalism. The problem is, is that the son has behaved impeccably throughout this. It has done exactly the right thing. It has done the sort of tabloid, acceptably tabloid journalism, which is holding the powerful to account. It has done so with a degree of, of measured carefulness. It has tried not to hurt people in the, in the, in the, in, in the way that it's done it. It didn't name Hugh Edwards. Um, it, it, it came down to Hugh Edwards' family to do that, okay. as you say very bravely. Um, and there is absolutely no case to answer from the, from the Sun whatsoever. Rod Little is currently a columnist at The Sun and former editor of the Today programme on Radio 4. So in keeping with his demand to hold the powerful to account, we should inform you of some facts about him. In 2005, Little accepted a caution for assaulting his then-girlfriend. This is how that was reported in The Times. Little gets caution for row with girlfriend. Rod Little, former editor of Radio 4's Today programme, was arrested on election night after allegedly punching his pregnant girlfriend. Police responding to a 999 call arrested Mr. Little at the South London home he shares with Alicia Monckton and questioned him for several hours at a police station. Mr. Little, who is a team captain on BBC Two's Call My Bluff quiz show and associate editor of The Spectator magazine, accepted a caution for common assault and was later released. Now, Little said he only accepted the caution to save time and had not in fact hit his girlfriend. She was 20 weeks pregnant at the time. So what about his media ethics, though? Perhaps Little is a scumbag in his personal life, but a forensic and fastidious journalist. Well, not so. In 2012, during the trial of two of Stephen Lawrence's killers, Little wrote this article. It was titled, Do Gary Dobson and David Norris Really Have Any Chance of a Fair Trial? The judge in the case considered it would affect the impartiality of the jury so much that he ordered them not to read it. 
the CPS, or the Crown Prosecution Service, then prosecuted the spectator for contempt of court. The paper did not contest it. So contempt of court is a very, very serious crime in journalism, one of the most serious ones. And we could go into the numerous instances of Rod Little's overt and vile racism. There really are loads and they are really, really atrocious. But let's stick to controversies with some connection to the allegations against Hugh Edwards. Of course, on that front, the key charge concerns the issue of sexual encounters with younger people. And on that theme, Little wrote this in 2012. The one thing stopping me from being a teacher was that I could not remotely conceive of not trying to shag the kids. It seemed to me virtually impossible not to. And I was convinced that I'd be right in there on day one. We're talking secondary school level here, by the way. And even then, I don't think I'd have dabbled much below year 10, as it is now called. He's a preposterous person. and It's preposterous that he's on the BBC in a section about media ethics, um, where they don't bring up all of those historical, well, I would say allegations, but I mean, I think lots of these are com com confirmed, right? Especially what he's written, that is confirmed. It's not an allegation that he wrote that he wouldn't be a teacher because he wouldn't be able to not shag a 14-year-old. That was his words in in The Spectator. It's literally mind-boggling. I was just sitting here listening to that litany in, in, in shock. Like, it, 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 seems, it seems unreal. There is no ambiguity then about The Sun's journalism. The BBC, though, have done some of their own original reporting on Hugh Edwards. Um, these new allegations were reported on Newsnight on Wednesday night. A BBC employee has told us that they receive what they believe are inappropriate messages, um, that they'd received these messages on social media from the presenter and they believe they were uncomfortable and left them feeling awkward. And they told us, sadly, from my experience, he's been sending suggestive messages to me. They were inappropriate. There is a power dynamic that makes them inappropriate. We have seen those messages which refer to the BBC staff members' appearance and they do appear to be flirtatious. And they were sent this year. Just to add to that, Lucy, Newsnight has spoken to two other people, one who currently works at the BBC, one a former uh, BBC employee. I spoke to one of them. Uh, this person told me they'd never met the newsreader. Um, and this person said they received late night messages on social media, including kisses from Hugh Edwards, which they said they believed was an abuse of power. And our colleague Luke Jones spoke to someone who still works here, who told us how the presenter had sent a private message on social media commenting on their physical appearance, which gave them a cold shudder. I think there's questions for BBC bosses about the culture in the newsroom and the way that complaints can be raised and the way people feel comfortable or not to raise them. Certainly two out of the three people said that they felt they couldn't report what they think is inappropriate behaviour to BBC managers. One said that, you know, while the BBC bosses have said in the last few days there are procedures put in place for whistleblowing, it's not really clear what to do. And the person I spoke to said, that, that, that they thought that BBC managers should be looking into the relationship dynamics between when you have very senior members of staff and junior members of staff, some on huge salaries and great deference is shown to the presenters. Uh, you know, this is someone who is very loyal to the BBC and they believe it's not just a BBC problem, but a problem across the whole industry. Um, the BBC responded tonight saying it's encouraging staff to come forward if they have any concerns. And the Director General did make this point in an email to all staff and that they're communicating with staff and they would continue to do so. Those allegations on Newsnight do seem like more of a potential abuse of power than the Sun 
stories, which, I mean, for everything that we currently know, are just a case of consensual adults trading pictures. And at the same time, the BBC have been criticised for continuing the row for releasing new revelations while Hugh Edwards is in hospital with severe depression. I think one of the things that really struck me watching that, especially in the context of the previous story, is just um, so thinking about those power imbalances that that exist that make it difficult for um, junior members of staff to um, to kind of challenge uh, abuses of power and potential abuses of power. Um, why are there these huge salaries and cultures of like extreme deference? To people that kind who, who to 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 the to the presenters, and I was just really thinking about that in the context of the junior doctors who are on strike, who are being paid like starvation wages, a pittance, and then we have this culture, as um, they discussed on Newsnight, of huge deference and ginormous salaries to people that are just kind of involved in in light chat. Um, I know that's not quite what you asked me, but just the the kind of the discrepancy between those two realities just really, really struck me. It just, it just, um, I guess, speaks to the priorities, what we prioritize and what we, what we, what we value. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated because I, I, I do think that, you know, you shouldn't have very senior employees sending suggestive messages to younger, more junior staffers, you know, especially if they haven't invited it. Right. I, I think that is an abuse of power. At the same time, I think why people are questioning whether this is the time to do that is because obviously the reason we're talking about Hugh Edwards is what now actually seems like incredibly irresponsible journalism in the sun. So if there's if someone's in the news because of a, a, a set of irresponsible stories, do you then pile in with a story that happens to be responsible taken on its own sort of terms, but when sort of thrown into this bigger maelstrom um, seems somewhat different. Very complicated. I mean, I think people are going to talk for a very long time about how the BBC handled this whole row. We are going to go straight on to our final story. Part-time MP Nadine Doris was very, very, very upset when the peerage that Boris Johnson promised her never materialised. But rather than blaming Johnson, a known liar, Doris seems to have gone on the rampage. Simon Case, the cabinet secretary and the country's most senior civil servant, recently appeared before the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. That's when the committee's chair, William Ragg, asked him this. Are you uh, aware of um, any rather forceful communications that might be described um, uh, sent by the um, lingering member for Mid-Bedfordshire um, to both uh, to, to senior civil servants Really, I suppose threatening it could be described to use the platform of the Commons and indeed her own television programme to get to the bottom of why she hadn't been given a peerage. So, uh, yes, was aware of those communications and have flagged them to both the Chief Whip and the Speaker of the House. Now, do you think that, have you maybe taken legal advice on whether you think the Honours Brackets Prevention and Abuses Act 1925 could come into play? Um, uh, seeking further advice on that question. So take an initial advice, but ask for more. So that law that RAG referred to, is supposed to prevent people from getting an honour through illicit means. Very intriguing. Um, the Times has more on the story reporting this. The Times has been told that Doris sent a WhatsApp message to Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, asking directly if she could be included on Truss's future list of peers after being blocked from receiving a peerage in Boris Johnson's resignation 
honors list. Now, that is a little bit desperate. Um, a friend of Dory said this to the Times. It is complete nonsense. She was probably upset on the day at the way she had been treated, but she's not aggressive. She has been very badly served. So she said it's complete nonsense, but she probably did send the message. I mean, that seems to be the message there, doesn't it? Um, Doris hasn't just been spending her time allegedly trying to squeeze onto the next honors list. She's also written a book. It's called The Plot, The Political Assassination of Boris Johnson. The book will come out on the day before Rishi Sunak's first Tory party conference as Prime Minister. God, she is entertaining. Um, This is how she describes it. I began to write about how one of our most electorally successful prime ministers had been taken down. What I discovered was a fault line in the Tory party stretching back decades involving the most Machiavellian political dark arts. Pre-order here. Here's how Labour's Fangham Debonair listed her many accomplishments in Parliament. I hope the leader had an enjoyable evening yesterday at the Prime Minister's so-called unifying hog roast in Downing Street. I do wonder if she managed to catch up with a member for Mid-Bedfordshire. You wouldn't think it if you've been looking out for her in Parliament, but I understand she's been pretty busy. She's failed to turn up here for over a year, but she's had time to present her own TV show, write her own Daily Mail column, and I gather even pen a book. A lot to fit in between strops over being denied a peerage. How do you rate Nadine Doris's chances of getting to the truth of the political reality in Britain? She might have a, a bestseller on her hands, but I don't know how uh, how far she's going to go in terms of revealing any great any great truths to us. I, I don't. It just feels surreal. Like I just wish real life didn't like feel feel like satire in this way like it's also just so it's just so Im- embarrassing as well like yeah <laughs> did these people have no shame i think it's embarrassing but i also kind of rate it now i don't know what this says about me <laughs> but but the idea that you're sort of you're going to get a peerage and then you get then you get blocked from getting it and then you say no i am getting this goddamn peerage right so then you're 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 messaging the most senior civil servant in the country saying can i get on the next prime minister's peerage list and then you're like well look i'm clearly not going to get this peerage so i am going to make life really goddamn difficult for the current prime minister who happens to be the leader of the party i'm in she's she, she's she's saying she is going to resign um to to prompt a by election but she's not saying when she's just like I will be resigning at some point and there will be a by-election at some point, but I'm going to do it on my terms. Thank you very much. And now she's releasing a book on the eve of Rishi Sunak's big conference speech um, where I I presume she's going to release a lot of secrets about Rishi Sunak that are going to make headlines for a week. You know, know, obviously we have different politics, but I kind of of see myself in her, you know? Kind of aspire to that. (laughs) I just think it's, it's... It's very cringe. It's very cringe. I understand like, like the kind of drama and why it would be uh, why it's like appealing to you, but this sounds more like kind of like high school um, high school politics dynamics rather than the kind of like highest echelons of power of a nation state. Like I, it's it's it just doesn't feel it's just surreal and embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think she should be prime minister. I wouldn't be voting for her in her constituency, but hashtag be more Nadine, I think. Not really. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I think on this question. I'm, I'm genuinely having a little bit of an identity crisis live on YouTube right now. Um, Emma, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you for having me. Yes, I've enjoyed our conversations. 
And thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.